Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Whether you're an entrepreneur or you're working at a nine to five, we see it across the board that Women undercut themselves, under undervalue themselves. Um, so whether it's like not asking for a raise or even you're making your own money as your own boss and women actually pay themselves less than male entrepreneurs. Female entrepreneurs pay themselves less than male entrepreneurs. Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Females, a podcast from Career Contessa that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season of The Females will explore the world of meltdowns and comebacks. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, CEO of Career Contessa and the host of The Females. Today's guest is Farnoosh Turabi, a personal finance expert, three-time author with her latest book called When She Makes More, and the host of the popular podcast called So Money. Farnoosh isn't your typical money expert with years working at a bank or managing other people's portfolios. It was actually through a career in journalism, coupled with her firsthand experience of working her way out of thousands of dollars of debt, that helped her carve out a niche in personal finance. Proof that we can all become experts without those Ivy League educations. Farnoosh will be the first to tell you that getting out of debt isn't easy. For her, it meant three to four years of working a nine to five, then heading home to tackle freelance writing, babysitting, dog sitting, and whatever else came her way on the side. Ultimately, the articles she wrote during those years would lead her to her first book deal. And then she lived happily ever after, right? Uh, Not quite. In 2009, like many Americans, Farnoosh got laid off and the prestigious career she'd built as a money expert came to a screeching halt. Finding herself at a crossroads between doing the hard thing and doing the really, really hard thing She chose the second. The result was a series of game-changing pivots that have made Farnoosh a household name today. Big bills, layoffs, and building a personal brand are just a few of the elements of Farnoosh's journey to becoming an authority on all things money. In today's episode, we'll talk about what $30,000 of debt really means, why every woman should focus on discovering her niche, and why you shouldn't settle for a Mr. Mom. But I'll let Farnoosh explain that one herself. Let's start with your career beginnings. After graduating from Penn State University, what did you do? After Penn State, I immediately enrolled to a a journalism program at Columbia University, the Graduate School of Journalism. And for me, this was going to be my big break 
into New York in journalism. Coming from Penn State, I had majored in finance. So it was really important for me, I think, to have this next educational step. And it has paid off in spades. Did you know that you wanted to, like, did you decide not to do journalism at Penn State because you knew you wanted to get a master's in journalism? So I arrived at Penn State not really knowing what I wanted to study. I had a lot of interests. And I think really, I really, really always wanted to be a journalist, but I was too afraid to admit it out loud and to really pursue it because all I had been told growing up, even though I, you know, I'd ran the school high school paper and loved writing and was really excited about all things media. Everyone who even worked in the industry would tell me, like, don't pursue this. There's no money in it. It's crazy hours. It's it's just uh, you're, they're going to work you to the grind. And it just was like, it's not glamorous. Like, if you think you're going to be Murphy Brown, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of brushed it to the side. and I was like, OK, I'm in college now. Time to take my life seriously and to really get an ROI on my time here. So I, I majored in finance. And because what's more of an ROI than, you know, majoring in money um, to to then get that job that makes you money. So I I started with that. And then about midway through college, I had an internship in New York City working for CNBC on their sales and marketing side. And while I was there, I think that's when life hit me again and was like, okay, this is, you're, you're getting warmer, Farnoosh. You're not really <laughs> supposed to be working on the sales and marketing side. You really, your heart is telling you you want to be on the other side of this business, talking about the business stories of the day, talking about the stock market, connecting with an audience. And it was then that, you know, I'm in New York and I'm meeting all these journalists. I'm at CNBC. I'm working in 30 Rock, in fact, where there's NBC News and the Today Show across the street. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, things started to happen inside my body and in my brain. And I was just like, you just can't deny it when your body has like a a real reaction to something like that, where you're, you're every bone in your body is telling you, this is where you need to be. And this is what you need to pursue. So I started to research graduate programs for journalism. I didn't want to reverse my educational path and go back to, you know, redeclaring a new major and staying in college for even longer than I had to. I wanted to just graduate and get going. And so I was like, you know what? Let's stick with finance. In the meantime, as I'm finishing my degree, I'm going to take some communications courses and, you know, get maybe an internship in media or journalism and and try to, you know, cobble this together a little bit while I'm in college and then apply for graduate school, which I felt would really put the finishing touches on my, you know, qualifications to go out there and actually get that journalism degree or job rather. And that's what I did. Right. And I know you said that paid off, but before that paid off, I know that you landed in over $30,000 of debt by age 22. I mean, that's pretty overwhelming, especially at such a young age. How did you, I mean, how did you react to that? How'd you climb out of it? I mean, take us through those steps. I faced it, which I think <laughs> it's not <was> pretty <laughs> helpful. You know, it's important to sort of face the figures. And I did that. And I also, uh, you know, felt okay that it was mostly student loans, not this like crazy high interest credit card debt. There was definitely some credit card debt in that mix. I just basically worked my tail off. I worked at my job and then I would come home and work other jobs, freelance writing assignments, babysitting, pet sitting. I would take the Greyhound 
back to Massachusetts from New York to visit my family for the weekend where they would feed me and I wouldn't really have to open up my wallet. I would, in fact, go back on the Greyhound with a grocery store bag full of like fruit and toilet paper because my Persian mom just insisted. And I, so I would just try to save as much money as possible while trying to make more money. And that's how I ended up getting out of debt. Yeah, it's it's tough to do that when you live in New York City, though, I'm sure. So tough. I mean, I, I had to forego a lot of fun weekends. And, you know, I just didn't have... I knew myself. I knew that if I allowed the city to take over, that I would be further and further into debt, that I would just be perpetuating this cycle of debt. It's very easy to spend money in New York City. And so I avoided those opportunities, you know, as uh, they say, like, if you're trying to lose weight, like, you know, don't go to a bakery, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. you got to kind of create a structure and a system for your life where you don't, you can curb temptation, you can curb the the opportunity to, to spend more than you should or have to. How long did it take you to pay off that debt? It took about three, four years, I would say in totality. Um, yeah, I think that what really then got me over the hurdle was when I was 26, I got a book deal and that was also a benefit of working so much after my nine to five, I'd go home and I'd write articles for this local paper. That was a free paper. It didn't pay me a lot of money, but those collections of stories ended up becoming, um, fodder for my first book called You're So Money. And that came with an advance, which then, you know, I think even then I made a really good decision because I could have just like spent the advance on a nicer apartment or vacations. And, but I was like, okay, I'm going to do the boring thing first, which is take half of this and just pay off all my debt. Yeah. Yeah. And then the rest I used to sort of, you know, be able to then go out and eat once in a while. (laughs) But um, it was, I'm proud of myself for doing that because I didn't have to. The interest rate wasn't crazy. My monthly student loan payments weren't so terribly high, but I just psychologically, I just needed to get rid of that to feel empowered and feel like I could really take on my life. Well, also, if you're writing a book about money, but you're still paying off all your debt, it probably don't want to be in debt. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, I want to be able to give this advice, you know, honestly. Um, So tell us about your role at Money Magazine and how it shaped your career, because was that the job you got after graduate school? It was. It was actually a return to Money Magazine. I was an intern there in college and I went to graduate school and I thought I was going to emerge and like everyone's going to want to hire me and that <laughs> yeah. didn't happen. And, but I was fortunate in that my former boss for my internship called me up and said, Hey, I heard you're in New York. If you're around, like, we'd love to bring you on as a temp and then, um, go from there. Kind of a glorified intern. I called it $18 an hour, baby. And it was very pivotal for me because it was really there that I got to, again, work very closely with my editors, but for a longer period of time too. And Specifically, I worked uh, on the on the same team as Gene Chatsky, and um, Gene Chatsky at the time was the editor at large of Money Magazine. She had the uh, very coveted back page, back of the book column. She was the Today Show editor. She she was on Oprah and The View, and she'd written multiple books, and she was speaking, and she was doing radio, and she was I – mean, you get the picture. And mm-hmm. this was 2003, back before there was any such thing as like a personal brand right. or being 
entrepreneurial in the media world. Like there's entrepreneurs who made companies and employed hundreds of people, but that to sort of be this um, like an authority. solopreneur, mm-hmm. right? That was new to me and definitely nothing that they taught you in journalism school. In journalism school, it was all about get the byline and go home and feed your family. You know, like there wasn't this, and, and be good at one thing. If you're the radio person, you're the, then you're the radio person or you're the magazine person or the TV person. But this idea of being able to combine all of these platforms well and to have multiple revenue streams was not something that I thought I was privy to until I got to Money Magazine and was able to see it happen through Jean's work, hard work. And it was inspiring, I will say, because it was then that I realized this is just the beginning for me. You know, I'm getting a lot of great I'm so I'm so happy to have started my career at Money because what I learned there was how to tell a story, a good story about money, how to write, how to fact check, how to ask the hard questions, how to be uh, service driven and service minded, you know, not about just sort of like opinionated, but really like if you're trying to help people, how do you talk about um, certain financial topics in a way that is not just informative, but engaging and inspiring. And so for me, even to today, even though I do podcasts and television work and the, the end of the day, I have to sit down and write first to really feel like I'm connected to the material and really know the, the material well to then be able to go and have a conversation about it. And that I learned at money. And I'm, even though I was just there for a little under a year, um, I decided I wanted to then go and get experience in the television world. So that, you know, print was the beginning. And then I wanted to layer on top of that some broadcast work. So I went and worked at New York One News, which is our local here in New York, our local cable 24 hour news channel covering the business beat. And from there, went and added another layer of dot com to my journalism experience, went and worked for the street dot com. And there also, I think elevated my reporting chops. So I was now interviewing CEOs and founders and had a show with Jim Cramer, who's, uh, <laughs> he's you know, big time. Yeah. One of my, um, favorite people and was a huge mentor to me still is. And so I felt like for me in my twenties, my responsibility to myself was to continue the learning curve and, that it didn't end at graduate school, that every job was going to necessarily teach me something new and something hard. And that um, I would be able to arrive at my 30s, being able to build on all of these experiences and and multitask it. You know, I didn't want to, I'm, I like, I'm an appetizer girl. I like to go to restaurants and try all the different appetizers. I don't want to get like the one entree. And that's how I see my career. I get to sort of dabble in a bunch of different things and experience life that way. And that for me is pure joy. Well, yeah. And I agree. The mediums that you're communicating through are all really different, but your topic is very focused. Finances, you know, you are a finance expert and I'm kind of curious, was that because you had the finance background or because you had worked through your debt? I mean, was money something where you were like, I really, I'm really passionate about this topic. Um, and I can probably make it more interesting and cool to talk about, or was that just sort of like you ended up at money magazine. So then that became the focus of, of your career. At first it started out as me just trying to be really practical. So I majored in finance in college, not because I was super in love with it, but because I knew that it would most likely be the one degree that would most likely lead to a job upon graduation 
and I had a lot of extra extracurricular interests. So I wanted to pick a career at least that was predictable and that uh, I could then maybe spend the rest of my time doing fun things like theater and writing and, um, you know, tennis. And I just, I wanted something that wasn't going to be um, unpredictable. And finance to, to an extent is like very predictable. Like you get a job at a bank or a consulting mm-hmm. firm and, you know, you work your hours and you go home and that's your career. And there's a lot of also upward mobility. And for women too, I, I saw a real hole in the market. Like there wasn't, a, there weren't a lot of people like me studying finance. Um, there was a lot of men at college and even in the industry, we know it's male dominant. So I thought, oh, maybe an opportunity to stand out while also pursuing something relatively, you know, traditional. Mm-hmm. And you had a great and, role model with Jean. Exactly. And then, um, you know, then I, then of course, like I changed my mind. I'm like, okay, no, no, never mind finance. Like it's all about journalism. But then I, even then I was like, how do I, how do I break in? You know, it, right. it, it, it's so competitive and it really does help to have a focus, have a niche. So whether you are obsessed with money or health or entertainment or sports, like focus on that because that's more likely going to allow you to get into the industry. And so I thought, let me just run with this. You know, since I have pursued finance, I don't want to just throw this all away. Let me leverage this to get into the career that I want to be in. And then once I get there, maybe I'll change my mind and start covering the red carpet. Um, It didn't happen. I just ended up really enjoying personal finance coverage. I saw the hole in the market, especially for young people as far as servicing them and their lack of literacy around this. And I too, you know, going through my debt and struggling to make a living in New York City, that all informed and excited me to really pursue this full on. And so in some ways, I gravitated towards this, not thinking like this was going to be the end all, but that it was just sort of a a way to leverage um, my experiences to get into the broader industry of media and journalism. But as I was really working at it, I realized this, there's something people really are receptive to this information. And I actually really enjoy talking about it. I will say this too. I grew up middle Eastern. (laughs) So we talk about money. Like Americans talk about sports. (laughs) Money is our sport. Mm -hmm. Um, we love to talk about how much things cost, how we afforded things. Um, we're obsessed with real estate. And so at home growing up, money was never a taboo topic. And I think that gave me the fluency and the the comfort level to then be able to do what I do the way that I do it. Right. And I mean, obviously, you've been very successful at that by picking a focus. I know you've written three money books. You host a podcast called So Money. You've appeared everywhere from, you know, O Magazine to the Wall Street Journal, which is actually, I think, kind of great because it's like one is very lifestyle oriented and one is very business oriented. And you've been able to talk about this topic that matters to everybody um, in a way that communicates to those audiences. Um, when you were like, were you purposely, I know you mentioned Jean kind of being a role model and watching that happen as a, as an expert, were you purposely trying to launch a career as a personal finance or financial expert? Or did it sort of come about because you were like, well, I've done journalism. Now I want to do TV. Now I'm going to do this. And because of the book, you got probably a lot of media attention. Yeah. One thing always led to another and I never had this sort of big, vision. Maybe I should have. You don't <laughs> I'm have doing a, vision a lot of vision work now. But in <laughs> yeah. my 20s, I was just like, what can get me to my next opportunity and next break? 
And so for me, though, the, the book writing was truly a catalyst for everything else that came after that. So writing a book, I thought my first book, I was like, I'll just write this. And you know, it's great. It's great money. And then I, my mom, my mom has something to show her friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's important. And yeah, it was, it was nice to get on television and, and get quoted in different media. But, but really I think how it, it saved my life because this, these, this book, at least the first one happened, came out in 2008, 2009, I got laid off from my day job at the street.com along with many other people. It was, a, you know, everybody's getting laid off in 2009. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, definitely had some, uh, you know, I felt bad about myself and I, what am I going to do? And the, the industry is shrinking, that my job was eliminated. And so I had, I was like kind of at a crossroads. I'm like, do I do the hard thing, which is try to find another job in the media that paid as much and gave me as much satisfaction or do the really, really hard thing, which is go out on my own and I decided to do the really, really hard thing, but I felt somewhat confident doing it, more confident than the latter because I had a book. Mm. And for me, the book was my new platform. And I didn't quite trust exactly how much it would benefit me. It ended up becoming my everything. You know, it was uh, the, the book that got me a television show, that got me on the Today Show continuously, that then led to another book and another book and brand partnerships. And, you know, now I teach people, entrepreneurs, how to write a book effectively to then leverage the success of that book to build their careers and build out their platforms. Mm-hmm. For me, I think book writing was and continues to be an amazing way to, you know, establish yourself as an authority, become an expert, build a platform and experience opportunities you didn't even know existed. Like I thought only athletes got brand endorsements. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Apparently there's this whole world of influencers and authors and experts that brands want to team up with. And I think I was sort of one of the first uh, members of that wave. And to this day, you know, um, there's a, a lot of advantages to writing a book. I'm kind of curious when there, I'm sure there are women listening to this who um, have an expertise in a certain topic and they would love to become an authority and really get paid for their expertise. Um, so for anyone who's thinking about launching that, and I would say that could happen for entrepreneurs, but it can also happen for women who, you know, maybe want to transition careers. Like they've always worked in finance and they really want to work in fashion. So one of their ways of doing that is, you know, kind of showing, Uh, potential employers, like I've got this expertise. Um, So regardless, whether it's for entrepreneurial or just career transitions, um, what would you say are like the top three things they should focus on? Because I think what's overwhelming about it is not like, do I have the expertise? Do I like talking about this topic? Can I help people? It's like you said, should I start with a podcast? Should I have a website? Should I only focus on it? It's like, where do you focus? Because there's so many areas. You can't be everywhere. I would say focus on the platform, the space where you know you can be most consistent because you like it the most and you find most joy in it. I would be miserable if every day I gave myself the responsibility to blog. I mean, I would just kill myself. Um, (laughs) I I love writing, but not that much. And I don't have like, I I wouldn't, I feel like I would just disappoint people. (laughs) It would (laughs) would lose quality. 
I started my podcast. I love talking for me. It's just faster to get my thoughts out verbally than to write it out. And so I started my podcast seven days a week. Consistency wow. really <laughs> matters. It matters a lot when you're, I mean, you don't know, you don't have to do seven days a week. Even if you're just one day a week, make sure you stick to that one day a week schedule until you, you know, decide to, to shift gears, maybe do two a week or whatever. But people, you don't build an audience by just posting sometimes here and there. Right. You know, people want to come knowing that every Tuesday or every week or every three days a week, like we will get your goodies. And whether that's a blog or a podcast or a radio show or a YouTube channel or a social media post, be consistent. For example, a couple of years ago, I was in the running for to become the, you know, for Oprah magazine was looking for its next financial contributor, like official financial contributor. They interviewed a lot of people. I was one of the last people they interviewed. I don't know who else was in the running, but I like to think that my podcast was a huge selling point. And we talked about it like most of the time during our meeting, which was, you know, what are my, what am I learning about women? And, um, what are the stories? Like so many stories, idea, mm-hmm. story ideas I have generated from my podcast. It keeps me current. It keeps me up to date on what people care about, how people are managing their money, what they're struggling with. So it's this for me, I mean, selfishly, it's this, it's this incredible, um, source of information that then I can use to leverage other opportunities. And I got the job at Oprah, by the way. Oh, congratulations. That's huge. So in 2014, you wrote a book called When She Makes More, and it focuses on women as the breadwinners in their family and the effects that can take. What prompted you to write this book? And what did you learn from your research? When She Makes More came out in May 2014, and two years before that, I was sitting in a bar and with a notepad waiting for my husband to come meet me, and I was like, all right, I really want to write another book. I don't know what it's going to be, but let me start taking some notes down about what I'm experiencing in my life, what I'm noticing out in the world, and how... You know, a book is not an article, so it had to be something that had a lot of legs to it that could be really... Uh, would merit, you know, like a 200, 300 word uh, book. And so I knew at that point, at the minimum, I was like, I want to write for women because my audience has become increasingly female. I feel as though um, I have a lot of thoughts on being a woman and, and as it pertains to financial authority and like ownership. But, you know, there are a lot of great books out there already for women about money and women and I didn't want to just repeat or echo what was already in the marketplace. So then I decided to look to internalize a little bit and say, okay, what's going on in my life that I feel is complex that I may be struggling with. And if I'm struggling with it and I'm supposed to be this expert, like what is it, where does that leave everybody else? Right. <laughs> so, um, for me it was, I was about to get, I think I had, was I about to get married? I was, so it wasn't my husband yet. He was my fiance. We were about to get married I made more than him. It was like not a big deal between the two of us, but I could tell there was this external pressure and a lot of eyes on us, um, side eye. And I wanted to explore that. Like I didn't feel this was something that I could necessarily just share with people and I felt like it would create a lot of judgment, a lot of, um, stereotypical judgment. And 
I thought, look at us, you know, we're living in the time like 2012, you know, we're so progressive, yet this is something that I felt was still very much an antiquated uh, complexity, like an antiquated sort of like setup, like, oh, she makes more than him. And then the, the traditional ideals around that were really kind of showing up in our lives. Like our mom, my mom was like, how's this going to work? If you're going to have kids one day and you're making more and you want to take time out of the workforce, like how, what does that, where does that leave you guys financially? That's a lot of pressure. Um, I would go out with friends and, um, you know, the men would pay for dinner and I'd be like, what's, you know, I, I like if I were to put down my credit card, I would get like, why, you know, it would be weird. Like, cause it wasn't gender traditional. And so I thought, let me just explore this a little bit. Um, I started to research online about some studies and they did find a lot of startling stuff about female breadwinners. Most startling is that when she makes more, there's a higher correlation for divorce. Oh, why is that? Well, for a lot of reasons, I think because money already, Lauren is like a really taboo topic in in our society. And then when you get into a relationship, marriage, even more of a communication shutdown, people don't talk about money in their relationships. It's often a leading cause for fighting and then divorce. But when you add to it this layer of she making more, which is not traditionally expected of, of couples. And also when we get into marriage, a lot of times like heterosexual couples, we fall into sort of gender normative roles where we're like, okay, you're the guy. So you need to provide financially and I'm the woman and I'm going to like play a supporting role. Um, there's this expectation that you get into a marriage that just certain things are going to fall into place that they have been for centuries. And then when they're not all of a sudden, you don't know how to deal with your role in your relationship. Men say that they feel emasculated. Women sometimes feel like they're taking on a role that is foreign to them, that they don't really want to inherit. Don't get me wrong. A lot of women like me thrive at this role. Like I love being the breadwinner, but even for us, it had a few, there was some, there was some awkwardness to it. So for a, a lot of different reasons, but, but the bottom line is, is that communication breaks down. There's a lot of discomfort, awkwardness. It's, it goes undiscussed. And as a result, resentment can brew um, and things just build up and explode. And, and, you know, maybe it's not the thing that causes the divorce, but it's, it's a big sort of, you know, part of, of the demise of the relationship. And I thought that was terrible, obvious for obvious reasons. Like, you know, how can we then tell our daughters, like, right. you can grow up and be whoever you want, marry for love. Oh, but this one little thing might screw things up, which is that if you make more than your husband, try not to do that. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted us to have a society, like, I wanted there to be transparent conversation around this because even if it was going to be ugly and sticky and emotional, like, we have to get through this so that we can then get to a better place and we can, um, be proud of the fact that whoever's making more money, like that's a really, you know, it's a prideful position. Um, I take it with a lot of seriousness. It's definitely pressure too, but it shouldn't matter if it's the man or the woman, but we haven't gotten there yet. In fact, um, census just did a blog post recently that put this all back on the map. So they found that when she makes more, she's more likely to, um, downplay her income. Right. And he is more likely to inflate his income, to overcompensate for the fact that he makes less. 
Well, I think a lot of people um, connect their self-worth to their net worth. So I can also see that's already kind of a trigger point for people. And then, of course, like you were saying, um, if you're if your assumption is to take on these traditional gender roles, and then of course that's not the case, I, I can I can see that really complicating a relationship for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious too with your research. Um, so when women do make more, I mean, I know one of the tips you had um, is um, don't settle for a Mr. Mom, which I think is sort of interesting because I've met more stay at home dads now. Like when I was growing up, I didn't meet a single stay at home, maybe one, but now I've met a few. Um, why, why is that your tip? For the same reason, I don't want women to opt out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's important for each person to be financially secure in her marriage. Um, I'm, untraditional in that way. I, and I get a lot of pushback and I, I understand where it comes from, but I just know too much of the, the data. Sorry. You know, like (laughs) I am a data person and I see that when, whether it's, she's not working or he's not working. I mean, one income in a relationship is tough, right? It's tough. It's really, it's fragile. Things get really tough. And so that's one reason. Um, it's more likely that there will be breakup and financial calamity when there's only one stream of income. Um, so you just, look, you can, I'm not saying that that's, I don't, I don't think that's like the right way to do it. Or like you have a bad relationship if you're not working, but, and I get why people don't, there's some real economic headwinds when it comes to childcare and all of that stuff. And eventually people are like, what's the point of working if my childcare costs are exceeding my income? Absolutely. I think, uh, I think that happens to a lot of women. I think the opt out is sort of one of those things where a lot of them feel like they don't have a choice because if childcare costs more than their income, then they're basically paying to work. And I mean, I can yeah. absolutely see why that would be a painful kind of decision to continue working under that. So, you know, I think then you like have resentment about work and now you want to, you know, I could totally see that happening, but I, I actually have the same belief as you. I think women, um, should continue to stay in the workforce, even if it's just, you know, keeping your foot in one section, you know, um, but, or have a plan to come back. Yeah. You know, really be thoughtful about it. And, and while you're at home with your kids, be thinking of like, what's my story? for when I go back into the workforce to interview. And there there are great stories of women I know who were out of the workforce for 10 years, they got back, they got senior level positions, but they had a story and they didn't just, um, they did not completely check out of the workforce, you know, even though they weren't maybe earning a paycheck, they were still networking, they were going to events, they were active, they were on LinkedIn, they were volunteering, they were doing side gigs maybe here and there. So it's really important to have a plan and not to discount yourself. So a lot of times, like when are women having their kids, you know, in their 30s, sometimes earlier. So you're not going to be making a ton of money. You know, chances are it's not until you hit like 40s actually peak earning for men and women. So so think about that. Like it, this is not the end all salary wise for you. There's a whole other uh, world out there of achievement in your career that um, is, is waiting for you. So, 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 you know, I understand that you may need to take time out now for the purposes of managing your, your family and, and being smart about with your money, but don't be stupid about your career. Right. If if that's important to you, um, and don't short sell yourself. But like, I don't, I just feel that 
for men too. I mean, I, um, uh, I, my advice is the same, you know, don't think that you can't maybe do both or a little bit of this child caring now and then like leave to go back into the workforce. I think it's important at the end of the day that there is two income streams, um, most years. Right. I, my mom was a stay at home mom and, um, she went back to work after I was, I was probably in college when she went back to working full time. And it's something I've, I've watched firsthand is just the fact that I think my mom has a lot more confidence in her skills and ability by going to work and having ownership. And, you know, she's like, look, I get to, I get to thank you every two weeks with a paycheck and not that raising children, you know, I loved being a mom and I was totally into it, but it's a bit of a thankless job at times. And so I think it's really fascinating also to watch, um, especially this generation kind of figure out how to navigate, okay, we've got kids, we're both working and how are we going to play this role together? And it's not easy. This is not like a perfect puzzle that gets put together, you know, always, uh, quickly either. But I, I think there's what I actually think is awesome is that there's a lot more conversations around how people are doing this. People are doing it and like they're sharing how they're making it work. And it, it definitely requires, um, both partners. Um, whereas before, you know, especially my mom would say like, well, if I had gone back to work, I also would have had to manage everything. And so it was just, it didn't seem like an option. So it's great that books like yours exist and, and tools and resources, just because I don't think that was available at all before. Yeah, it's definitely, um, we're at a place in life and time where, uh, if you have a problem, there's probably a community at least out there that can relate. And that's a great thing to tap into because I don't want to say there's like absolute solutions out there because everyone's problems different and everyone's solution is going to be different. But I think there's a lot we can learn from each other. We just have to admit and talk about what we're facing. This, this sometimes is stuff that we don't want to share because for whatever reason, um, you know, self-worth net worth and everything else that money creates. Um, but it's important. And if I, at the very least was able to maybe spark some additional dialogue, then I feel like then that's a great beginning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what is your number one or what is the number one financial mistake that you see women specifically making? I think it's not asking for what they're worth. Whether you're an entrepreneur or you're working at a nine to five, we see it across the board that women undercut themselves, under undervalue themselves. Um, so whether it's like not asking for a raise or even you're making your own money as your own boss and women actually pay themselves less than male entrepreneurs. Female entrepreneurs pay themselves less than male entrepreneurs. So I just want to remind women that they're worth it, that, that it's hard sometimes to ask for it. And I know that sometimes you get penalized for asking for it. Uh, studies show that, you know, when men ask for raises versus women, same script, the women are perceived as being like, um, uh, demanding and whatever. But my theory on that is that cause we don't do it enough, you know, like if we actually were the kind of, if we were like men and we went in and asked for raises on mass, then it would just become part of business. And like, it would just be something that employers would expect. And it wouldn't be this like 
kind of coming out of left field thing where, yeah, in that case, maybe it leaves them a little, you know, jarred, Mm -hmm. but we have to just keep doing it. And even if we do face the rejection, the process of just speaking out loud, what you're worth to somebody else is good practice. Right. I asked for raises a lot in my first job, didn't get them. But when I got to my second job, it just came out of me, you know, I would just do it. And then I, I got the raise eventually, but it took, it took time and that's fine. It's not going to happen right away, but you need to start flexing that muscle. Yeah. And I think if you're going to ask, just make sure you know what you're asking for and you you're ready to explain it. You know, I think sometimes the message of ask for more, ask for more. I remember when I was a recruiter, we were hiring and we were basically hiring an intern into a full-time role. And, um, she, I was like, this is what this pays. And she literally came back and asked for like $20,000 more. And I was like, okay, can you tell me where you got that number? And she froze and she was like, I, you know, I know I need to ask for more and this is where you, you gave me, but if you added this many more dollars to the hour, it would make me, you know, I was like uh, that, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, so the message of ask for more is only one part of the message. Ask for more, you know, when you have, you know, accomplishments and you've, you've, contributed to the company's, um, goals and bottom line. And I I just think, and this is maybe just my personal belief, but I just feel like when you're going to ask for a raise, if they ask you, okay, how'd you get to that number? Why do you think we should give you a raise? You should be able to confidently back it up with something other than, well, I was told I should ask for it. And the other thing is asking for a raise is totally different than being like, my salary is at 50,000. I'd like to be at 60,000, right. And being really, really specific, but as a recruiter, that was my point of view because we're negotiating on salaries all the time. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I also think that I've had people on my show, female employers who, um, you know, especially for speaking to an audience of women who are applying for jobs, um, going in and not just accepting that first offer, you know, uh, if they offer you 50,000, it is enough sometimes to be like that, you know, if assuming you've done your market research, um, there's usually room. I mean, you tell me the first offer isn't always like the last offer there. Usually the idea is like, we're going to go back and forth a little bit. So leverage that a lot of first time employees coming out of college, millennials don't negotiate. And they did a survey recently and they found that employers were like, okay, well, we were expecting (laughs) you to, but okay. Like they're they're Sometimes you don't need like a reason. You just, here's 50,000. Well, let's, I was hoping to make more like 55 because, you know, it's New York and I have some moving expenses. Plus like, you know, um, I'm going to be able to start working for you as soon as pot, like right away and not take time off. I don't think it's necessary, especially because again, if you're just starting out, you don't really have like the experience. So, um, but what you just said would work, you know, it's just anything other than I was told to ask for more. Don't say cuz. I don't know. I saw it online somewhere. You're like, um, I don't think that's how that works. Like like pay scale and and comparably and Mm -hmm. there's a lot. And then also find a mentor, somebody who's maybe worked in the industry for a while, the best way to know whether you're making what you should be making is to ask other people what yeah, you're making and absolutely. don't be shy to ask them. I mean, it's, if it's in, in privacy, like that's how we just recently learned that BBC was undercutting mm-hmm. a, some of its email editors by a lot. Right. Right. We have a tool on Career Contessa called the Salary Project, and it's an anonymous salary database and it's free. So for anyone that's listening to this and, you know, maybe you 
want to gradually work up to talking to a person in real life about their salary, go on Career Contessa, go to the Salary Project. Um, you fill out a free survey, and then you get to literally see. It's such. It's so great. I always joke that it's like a rabbit hole, but it's essentially like an Excel list of how much money people make, and it tells you their age, their location, their job title, um, even their ethnicity, because there's huge um, pay discrepancies among you know white women versus Latino women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I agree. Like talk to real people, look at online tools, do your market research a hundred percent. I want to move into our last couple of questions. If you could rename Meltdown, what would you call it? Rename Meltdown. Oh my gosh. I think I would call it, um, a blessing in disguise. No, that's great. I know this is always a tough question, but it's the reason why I love this question is because it's always so interesting to hear what people, um, what do other people say? Um, other people have said opportunity, you know, um, I think one person said like an open door. So you're, you're definitely in line with, with in, other people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so for new tell us what's next for you and your career. You know, I get that question a lot and I all of a sudden feel like I have to come up with some big fancy answer. And I, and I've again, like, you know, I think thanks to age and experience and having a lot on my to-do list that has nothing to do with work. Cause I have two kids now and I just feel like my responsibility right now is to enjoy and appreciate the life that I have. And of course, to be thinking ahead and planning ahead. I'm a, I'm, I'm the breadwinner in my family. Um, there is a bit of pressure to provide, but I also want to be very thoughtful and not feel like I'm doing stuff because that's what everybody else is doing. Right. Or I feel like, Oh gosh, I have to spend more time on Instagram. I mean, <laughs> I, um, I know that there's more out there for me to tackle and pursue and be challenged by. And I just, uh, I trust that, you know, and I'm old enough now to feel like not that I'm just going to sit on my couch and opportunities are going to present themselves. I'm going to keep my ear to the ground and I'm going to be very curious and learning all the time. Uh, so I'm not really sure what is going to be on the other side of things in a year, but I know that I'm having a great time. And for the first time in a long time, I feel like I've earned the ability to just enjoy my summer and, you know, be with my kids and not be stressed about the next big project. Um, I'm inherently just a very self-motivated person. So I think I've gotten to a place now where I just really trust that about myself, that uh, I'm not going to just let things go. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I would love for you to let the listeners know where they can find you if they want to learn more about your podcast, your books, everything like that. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So the podcast is called So Money. It's on iTunes. But if you'd like to check it out on my site, go to somoneypodcast.com. I'm very active on Instagram these days uh, because I just find it that it's a lot of fun. And I tend to pop in there and ask you about what's on your money mind, answer questions on the go. So if you ever have a money question or a career question or anything, that's a great place to find me. And I usually get back to people within like 36 hours. And for all other things, you can go to farnoosh.tv and learn about my books and um, a little bit more about me and how to get in touch. So thank you so much. Opportunity. Thank you so much. That was Farnoosh Tarabi, personal finance expert, author, and podcast host. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. 
For more interviews and career advice from incredible women, check out careercontessa.com. We also offer other great resources like career coaching, a curated jobs board, profiles on female supportive companies, and on-demand career courses in our e-learning library. Seriously, we're a one-stop shop for your career success. And if you're looking for more money advice, check out our salary database called The Salary Project. Over 12,000 people have already anonymously submitted their salaries. It's free, it's easy to use, and the link is located in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate us and review us. It's really helpful and valuable to see what you guys like about the show. Plus, we'll send you all the good karma vibes in return. And don't forget that we're super social on our Instagram channel, at Career Contessa, and we'd love your help spreading the word about this podcast by mentioning it on your social media channels with hashtag the females podcast. You can expect a new episode of the females podcast every Tuesday, and you won't want to miss next week's because we have Anne Choquette, the former editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine, author of The Big Life, and a champion for millennial women who are redefining the meaning of power and success. It is my mission to normalize the word ambition when it comes to women. We should own it. You want what you want for your life and you shouldn't have to soft pedal it. And it 100% does not mean some corporate ladder climber backstabber, right? Ambition is simply wanting what you want for your life and going for it.